from Ontic Mind. I'm Dylan Stevens, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, IOP control and RNFL loss. We thought that we would be better able to capture this direct relationship between trochlear pressure and RGC loss. The advent of OCT imaging allowed for a paradigm shift in the treatment of glaucoma. In addition to monitoring standard perimetry and intraocular pressure, one can follow changes in retinal nerve fiber layer thickness over time and escalate or de-escalate therapy as indicated. But how exactly does intraocular pressure relate to RNFL thickness? My guest today is Dr. Alessandro Jamal of Duke Eye Center. We will be discussing his recent work on the impact of intraocular pressure control on rates of RNFL loss. Prior to this study, what was your approach and thinking regarding IOP control and RNFL loss or glaucoma progression? What benchmarks did you utilize in patient care? Yeah, so over the years, there were several clinical trials that investigated this relationship between trochlear pressure and the risk of glaucoma progression. But uh, most of those large clinical trials they did not investigate their NFL thickness from OCT as the main outcome uh, measure for progression. So part of the reasons that those benchmark studies, they started before the OCT technology was available, but using the visual field metrics, they provided very important validation of higher intraocular pressure as a risk factor for glaucoma. So for example, we have the EMGT, the early manifest glaucoma trial, they estimated a 10% less risk of progression for each one millimeter reduction in IOP. And there's the AGES study, specifically the AGES Report 7, which was the main bench, benchmark study that we based on for our, for our analysis here. So I think most ophthalmologists saw at least once during their residency or during conference that famous plot that showed that eyes with IOP consistently lower than 18 in 100% of the visits didn't show any visual field progression as measured by the AGES score. Uh, it also showed that, uh, those vis that the visual field loss was significantly more frequent in eyes with mean IOP above 17.5 compared to those that had IOP below 14 uh, millimeters of mercury in all the visits. So in our study, we sort of borrowed this cutoff of 18 based on the ages of study to analyze the rates of progression for uh, RNFL thickness. But we also checked, it, checked some other stricter and looser cutoffs of 15 and 21. So you touched on a couple of the, the big nominal papers in glaucoma management, and there's innumerable more. I mean, if we discuss them all, we'll, we'll be here uh, until tomorrow. But of all the, the different types of information you can get in glaucoma, you know, visual field loss, like you mentioned, or RNFL, given our new, uh, you know, the advancements within OCT imaging, how did you decide on RNFL thickness in particular for, for study? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, we have the uh, visual uh, preservation of visual function is the primary goal for glaucoma. And uh, functional loss does have a great impact on the subject's perception of quality of life. So there is no question that visual field loss is an important outcome for glaucoma, and we shouldn't ignore that. But for, uh, for our analysis, uh, RNFL presented as a be better metric. So if we use perimetry to assess uh, how the intraocular pressure impacted the neural loss, uh, we would have additional compounding factors to the analysis. 
mainly due to the subjective nature of perimetry. And other, there are other problems with nonlinearities between uh, RGC laws and the, the thresholds of visual sensitivity, which is measured in decibels. So we, used, we chose the OCT because we have a reliable, objective, quantitative assessment of neural loss. And we, we thought that we would be better able to capture this direct relationship between trochlear pressure and RGC loss. How did you decide who to include, exclude, and overall, what was the, the design? Yeah, so uh, it all started with the DGR, the Duke Glaucoma Registry. So it was an effort that we initiated in 2017 when I came to Duke to export, mask, and organize all this clinical information from all patients with glaucoma at Duke. So under the supervision of Dr. Medeiros, I led the team that put together this data set. And soon enough, we realized that we could get the data of, of the 427,000 plus patients that we have that had been seen at the Duke Eye Center and the other six satellite clinics that uh, Duke has around North Carolina. So it was also possible because Duke was one of the first places in the US to adopt the electronic health records. So we have billing codes that date back from to uh, date back to 2005. But most of the complete clinical data, clinical, sorry, most of the complete clinical data is from 2012 on. So uh, it added up like to uh, over 300,000 OCT scans only for the peripapillary NFL. And Duke is also very protective of, of PHI for a good reason. Uh, and we took advantage of PACE, which is an extremely secure uh, virtual environment that was developed by the university where we could work with this protected uh, health information. So then we used all this real world uh, routine care clinical data that we had available to calculate those rates of progression for NFL thickness over time. Uh, we got the patients that had ICD codes for glaucoma only. And for the analysis, we used linear mixed models which is a very powerful statistical method to give us reliable estimates of individual slopes of change for each eye, even in those eyes with fewer observations. We had from two to nine uh, tests per eye. And then we got those slopes. We classified those slopes according to pre-established cutoffs for rates of NFL loss. So they were, they were classified as slow progressors if the change was slower than one micron a year. They were moderate if they were between one and two, and fast if they were losing more than two microns a year. And we also categorized the, the eyes according to the IOP control. So we got all the, all the visits they had, and it, we, we with, we calculated the ones below 18 millimeters of mercury. So uh, they, they could have all the visits uh, below 18, 75 to 100% of the visits below 18, 50% to less than 75% of, of the visits below 18, and less than half of the visits below 18. And we also, as I said before, we evaluated uh, other cutoffs for 21 and 15 millimeters of mercury. You know, it's not every day that you read a, a, an ophthalmology paper that has numbers like over 300,000 or over 400,000. I think anytime we have a study like that, it, it gives us really, really valuable information. 
Um, I want to touch briefly on the choice of spectral domain OCT. You know, OCT is sort of a burgeoning field in of itself. Why did we choose spectral domain OCT and why the RNFL in particular in this case? Yeah, so over the time, we saw an evolution in the imaging uh, devices for glaucoma. So it always started back with subjective analysis of fundus photographs, uh, cup to disc ratio. But in more recent years, we saw the GDX, the HRT, and then time domain OCT. And it, it all culminated on the spectral domain OCT, which uses some of the technology and the ways to report glaucomatous damage that we saw in those previous devices. And RNFL thickness from OCT is very reliable. It's very reproducible. It's widely used since 2012. Uh, it's an objective metric. It has been broadly used in clinical practice. It has been uh, correlated to quality of life and it, rates of change in RNFL can predict uh, rates of future rates of change in visual field. So what was the outcome overall of the project and, and was it what you expected? Yeah, so I think the numbers are quite impressive alone. We had 85,000 IOP measurements, 60,000 OCT tests for the final analysis. But the important thing is that we can do what we can do with such a large data set. So with the DGR, we were able to produce very reliable estimates of the rates of change and risk factors. So we saw that for each one millimeter of mercury higher in mean IOP during follow-up, we had a 0.05 microma year faster RNFL loss after we adjusted for other potentially confounding variables. We also observed that most eyes had good IOP control with at least 75% of all IOP measures below 18, which was the cutoff that was used for the AGES study. And we saw that the rates of change were clearly impacted by the level of IOP control. So for eyes that had fast progression, 20% of them had IOP below 18 in all the visits. And when we used a stricter cutoff of 15, we then saw that a drop to only 9% of the eyes with fast progression had all visits with IOP below that, that cutoff of 15. And as we expected for a loser uh, cutoff of 21, the percentage of eyes with fast progression went up to 41% for in this group. So uh, it's sort of like we did expect to see slower rates of progression with better IOP control, but we also found that although having a higher frequency of IOP visits uh, below 18, we had slower rates of change over time, it was still not sufficient to prevent moderate or fast progression for all the eyes, which means that there are others, there are the risk factors, underlying risk factors uh, causing fast progression. Yeah, I think the, the differentiation you pointed out between slow versus moderate versus fast progressors is a really interesting finding within this paper. And I just wanted to get your thoughts, maybe outside of the scope of this project a little bit, but what do you, why do you think that difference exists independent of IOP? What do you think other contributors could be? Yeah, I think that's the, the key question from that we get from the paper. Uh, I, I think we, we read in our textbooks that IOP is a risk factor for glaucoma. And soon enough, we start clinic, we forget that. And we start using IOP as the cause of glaucoma, which is not true. 
So we have to remember that there are numerous other risk factors for this disease, like race, age, ocular perfusion pressure, uh, but they are not modifiable as IOPs. So this can be seen by this, those 9% of the eyes that had all visits uh, with IOP below 15 and still progressed at fast uh, rates of change. So since this study was published, we have concentrated all our efforts in some of those risk factors. Uh, one study that we published in IOVS recently is about the modifying effect of age on IOP and the increasing susceptibility to RNFL loss in glaucoma. So we saw that uh, older patients were more susceptible to glaucomatous progression than the younger patients, despite the same level of IOP during follow-up. In the AGS meeting this year, I presented some preliminary results of how lowering diastolic blood pressure too much had a significant impact on faster rates of changing glaucoma to when we adjusted for IOP. Uh, on the other hand, we saw some other factors that we thought that could uh, impact this glaucomatous progression like uh, diabetes control, but they did not. So we also published a work from a medical student from Duke, uh, Nicholas Johnson, uh, in ophthalmology glaucoma last year. And then we showed that the levels of HbA1c in patients with diabetes and glaucoma didn't change significantly how the rates of change in both visual field MD and OCT RNFL were over time. So we're still looking at multiple other risk factors. In these slow versus fast progressors, would you think that they would show any different changes in the other, the, the litany of other um, glaucoma testing that we have available? Yes, yes, absolutely. So in fact, before this study uh, that we had in the Blue Journal, we published a study in AGO in which we first described uh, and baptized the DGR. Uh, we called it the rates of glaucomatose structural and functional change from this large clinical population. So in that paper, we evaluated rates of, of, of change in MD and RNFL uh, from, from patients that had both, te both tests on our database in the same time, time frame. And we were particularly interested in comparing those proportional advice that could be categorized as having fast, fast rates of change under different testing modalities, uh, such as OCT and uh, uh, perimetry. So in that, that paper, we showed uh, that both structure and functional tests, they should be used to monitor the disease, regardless of the amount uh, of baseline damage, and that OCT still had an important role in detecting fast progressors, even in eyes with advanced glaucoma. So this assessment of rates of change, when we analyzed them, uh, the agreement between S uh, SAP and OCT was very low. So indicating that there's this clear need to keep mo uh, monitoring the both structure and functional, functional uh, metrics in all stages of glaucoma. One thing that your paper mentions near the end, and I think is a really important point is the severity of disease and how that may have affected the treating physician's choice in target pressures. Namely, someone with a more severe disease may have a target pressure that is somewhat lower and they're flagged as a fast progressor because they're already in a severe stage of the disease. How do you feel that those physician-driven choices may have affected the outcome of your overall project? Yeah, that's, that's a great point. Uh, so this 
this was all routine care data and the eyes were treated according to the providers and they could have more than one. So we know that the target IOP is set by the clinician and it's based on a lot of risk factors and metrics for progression, but also according to surgery risk or uh, uh, collateral effects of drugs. So this, charge may, this target may change during follow-up it was natural that eyes that, uh, with more aggressive disease were treated with more aggressive IOP lowering treatment. But this, this not always is possible and patient might progress at faster rates despite uh, if he or she has an aggressive disease. How generalizable are, are the results? Obviously this, like we discussed earlier, is a, is a very, very large patient sample size. And as such, it really, it gives us a good picture of our, our patients day to day. Do you think IOP targets can be determined based on monitoring RNFL loss alone? Or what are your thoughts? Well, I, I think the results are quite general, generalizable to clinical practice from this study. Actually, the beauty of those studies is that we use electronic health records, which reflect how the disease progresses in a clinical setting and not in clinical trials. So when uh, clinical trials, they tend to have uh, rigid follow-up schemes, they have unrealistic rates of adherence to treatment, and also very restrictive inclusion and exclusion criteria. Therefore, those studies may not represent how glaucoma behaves in a real-world setting. So with the Duke Glaucoma Registry, for the first time, I think we had a chance to do that. Uh, another important aspect in classifying those eyes according to the progression rate in, in RNFL loss is that uh, many patients might progress slowly over time and may be treated conservatively, but there's, there, are ones, there are some of them that show rapid deterioration that may require more aggressive treatment to avoid blindness. So I like this idea if you have a patient at a fast rate of uh, at, at, at uh, initially, like two, two microns a year might not seem much, but if the patient's progressing at a fast rate of minus two microns a year, in 10 years, that translates to 20 micron loss if nothing is done. So if a patient starts at 70 microns in, in global NFL thick, in thickness at 50 years, and it's progressing at a fast rate of two, it will likely lead this patient to blindness in his or her life. He's going to reach the floor uh, for the NFL thickness uh, bef before his life expectancy uh, in the U.S. So I think RNFL can be used as, as a metric for that. I wouldn't use it alone, but for this study, so if you could see the, this study, we wanted to see the, the direct effect of IOP. So uh, RNFL was a better metric but it doesn't mean that it's, the patients should be followed only with our, uh, OCT. Those, those small changes in one year really do add up uh, over the course of a patient's life. And you know, if they're diagnosed when they're 40 years old or 30 years old, obviously they have a long lifetime ahead of them and that would add up if not managed appropriately to a large RNFL loss. Any final thoughts before we wrap up today? I think that those uh, the message of the paper is that uh, the target IOP of 15 would make it much less likely to have fast progression, uh, while a target of 21 would still be sufficient for a large number of eyes uh, to prevent this fast deterioration. So 
uh, I think this may assist clinicians in establishing uh, individualized target pressures in clinical practice, but it also shows that there are other important underlying risk factors besides IOP that lead to rapid deterioration with substantial risk for blindness. So we hope that we can answer more about those questions with our database in the future. Well, uh, Dr. Jamal, I want to thank you for being with me here today. Obviously, we, we all look forward to more papers, more projects coming out of your group. This is a, a, a fantastic opportunity with the amount of data and patients that you have available at Duke to really find out any of those small details, small ways we can make changes that will benefit our, our patients with glaucoma. Thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you. Dr. Alessandro Jamal and his associates continue their quest to more fully understand and treat glaucoma at Duke Eye Center in Durham, North Carolina. His paper, Impact of Intraocular Pressure Control on Rates of Retinal Nerve Fiber Layer Loss in a Large Clinical Population, appears in the January 2021 edition of Ophthalmology. This interview and those before it are meant to be a part of a conversation in which you participate. If you have any questions or comments for Dr. Jamal or any of our prior guests, please reach out to the podcast at josh at onticmind.com. As seen from here is a production of Ontic Mind Incorporated. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Dylan Stevens.